Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. I had a great week. I had a raging cold last Sunday morning. It's why as soon as the sermon was over, I ran out that door. I went home and tipped over for, and slept for four hours. Managed to pull it together enough to get to a staff meeting on Monday morning, but I went to bed Monday afternoon. I uh, came back on Tuesday. We did board meeting Tuesday night. I ran home and... Uh, um, Lost weight from 11 o'clock uh, Tuesday night until 7 o'clock Wednesday morning, the most horrific night of my life. And um, now all I have left is a cold, but it's leaving this ticklish cough that may uh, punctuate the sermon some, so I hope you'll tolerate my water bottle this morning. You guys know how this thing goes, and so do I. We, uh, we're going to pull into a line of vehicles that's going to wrap around uh, the back of a restaurant in a very narrow lane. You may lose part of your car as you drive through there if you're not paying much attention, but you're going to get in line and you're going to wait. And then you'll suddenly get to pull forward a few feet and then you're going to wait some more. And then you're going to find yourself in front of a menu that has dozens and dozens of options and you'll look at them like you're really asking a question. And after waiting there for three or four minutes, you're going to order the same thing that you do every single time that you pull through that drive-thru, right? You'll wait and you'll wait and you'll you'll get to a window where you're supposed to pay someone and you won't really have understood what they said to you through the squawk box back there. And when you get to the window, the girl there's going to have a headset on. And so you don't know whether she's talking to you or to the people whose order she's taking in the car behind you. And so you just kind of shove some money her direction, and and she takes it, and she hands back to you either coins and bills or a card and and a receipt, and you know you're supposed to proceed with caution. So you pull ahead a little bit, and you pull ahead a little bit more, and you breathe all that diesel exhaust from that big, uh, you know, masculine pickup that's right there in front of you, and you get to the pickup window, and the person working there shoves something out the window, and you take it, and they give you some believable well wishes, and you take off. And what's in that bag may or may not fit exactly what you asked But whatever it is, it's food for you and me, and it's enough to get us by until we get to the next meal. Welcome to McDonald's, right? Yeah. We've each done that enough times to be very, very familiar with the process. It always goes something like that. There's a squawk and a wait and a conversation and some more waiting and the pay window and the waiting and the pickup window and on to the next thing. We know the end result. We know the process largely is going to go. Food and drink for us at the end, but the details in the middle uh, vary a little bit from one time to the next. How much waiting? Depends. How accurate is the order? It depends. How frustrated or pleased am I by the time I finish this process? Depends on how long it took and how accurate the order was, right? Something like that. Today's the third Sunday of Advent, and that means that next Sunday is Christmas Sunday. I've looked at the calendar 14 times. It still doesn't feel right, but next Sunday is Christmas Sunday. It's why all those things that Peter mentioned earlier are going to happen. It's that brunch at 9.15. It's the precious children's program that I can't wait for at our regular worship time at 10.30 and, and Uncle Cliff's story time following that. 
For the last two weeks, though, we've been journeying through Ruth. It's this Advent journey, not the typical journey with Isaiah and the gospel writers, but with Ruth, not a a customary Advent passage, but it's still a story of some people who were journeying to the Jerusalem slash Bethlehem vicinity in search of a redeemer. What's a redeemer? A redeemer is just a person who has the horsepower and the resources and the compassion to insert themselves into our lives and to address our biggest, most difficult problems. What's it take to find a redeemer? Most of the time, it takes desperation. Because when we're just uh, a little bit inconvenienced, when we're just having a little bit of a hard time, very few of us will step outside of ourselves and ask for help. It usually has to settle into a sense of desperation before we'll ever do what it takes to find and get some help. That's what it takes is desperation. From our side, from the Redeemer's side, however, what it takes is love. Love, I I hope you've learned this definition. We'll study it together as long as I'm your pastor. Love is a demonstrated preference for the well-being of others. And it will take you on absolutely amazing journeys. It's what we talked about last week. Whenever you decide that love is going to be the rule of the day, and by that I mean a particular day, hopefully you make that decision for all of life, but every single day that you decide that love is going to be the rule of the day, get ready, because that day, love is going to take you on a journey. And in our story thus far, we can see how that's worked out. It took a man named Elimelech on a journey. He and his wife Ruth had two sickly boys, and they lived in Israel at a time when it was struck by drought and famine. It was absolutely nobody's dream move, but Elimelech packed up his family and he moved them to Moab, which would be like you and I being so desperate that we would move the family to Afghanistan or Iran thinking, there, that's better. How desperate is a man before he makes that kind of move? And what kind of love causes a woman to support her husband and make that kind of move with him? What kind of love causes her to rise to the occasion, raising her boys into good, full-grown men when their dad dies when they're still too young? What kind of love reaches out to daughters-in-law, foreign-born daughters-in-law, and invites them to be a part of the family forever after the boys die young, leaving no children? There's a whole lot of desperation in the story of Ruth. But there is a whole lot of love in that story too. By the time we left the story last week, Elimelech's wife Naomi and her daughter-in-law Ruth had moved back to Bethlehem. It was a mutual expression to one another of concern for each other's well-being. Naomi said, I'm not so sure that Ruth is going to fare very well here in her own land as a widow and with her father having died, I'll take her with me. Ruth said, I know it's going to live in a foreign land where I'm nobody's prized bride, but my mother-in-law is old and she needs my help. And I said that I loved her and so I'm going with her. It was a mutual expression of concern for one another's well-being. In other words, it was, it was real love. And that's where we'll take up the story today. And from it, we're going to learn just what it takes to really find and connect with a Redeemer when you finally realize that you're in over your head. So let's read it together. Stand with me, please. Lord, one more time we turn to your word. We do it every single Sunday. And I pray this very same prayer every single week. 
I ask you in one way or another to turn on the lights, to give us some sort of spiritual understanding that goes beyond our own reading comprehension. We can sound it out. We know what sentence structure is. We've, we've, we've seen nouns and verbs and subjects and predicates, but that is not what we, what we desire alone this morning. What we ask is that as we read the pages of Scripture, you would do for us what you have done billions and trillions of times before. You just meet people of faith and whisper in their ear when there's an idea in there that can be instructive to our spirits. But every one of us pauses right now and just kind of humbles ourselves, says, I can be teachable today. Every single one of us says, I think I want to hear from God. Together, we invite you to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. One day, Naomi said to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Now, do as I tell you. Take a bath, put on perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He'll tell you what to do. I'll do everything you say, Ruth replied. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions of her mother-in-law. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You're showing even more family loyalty now than you did before, for you've not gone after a young man, whether rich or poor. Now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I'll do what's necessary, for everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. But while it's true that I am one of your family redeemers, there's another man who's more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight, and in the morning I'll talk to him. If he's willing to redeem you, very well, let him marry you. But if he's not willing, then as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now, lie down here till morning. So, Ruth lay at Boaz's feet until the morning. But she got up before it was light enough for people to recognize each other. For Boaz had said, no one must know that a woman was here at the threshing floor. Then Boaz said to her, bring your cloak and spread it out. And he measured six scoops of barley into the cloak and placed it on her back. Then he returned to the town. When Ruth went back to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, what happened, my daughter? Ruth told Naomi everything Boaz had done for her, and she added, he gave me these six scoops of barley and said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said to her, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he settles things today. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. 
And when I was in high school, uh, I had a curfew. That curfew was 10 o'clock. And by that, my parents meant 9.59. I was a good kid. I think they were mostly sure of that. Uh, but I wanted to stay out later. So on a handful of occasions, I asked them why they wouldn't let me stay out later. And my dad's answer, like his answers to everything, was very short and to the point, this time no exception. He said, nothing much good happens after 10, a. 10 o'clock, son. Nothing much good happens after 10 o'clock, son. That phrase continues to rattle around in my head from time to time. And while I recognize that it isn't, you know, some universal truth, it's practical wisdom and it's right an awful lot of the time. And truth be told, uh, that has come to color my perception of life these days and of life as I read this story. Because of the way that I was raised, very traditionally, it feels to me in this story like there is something very inappropriate that is going on. So once again, I had to hit the books and see if the scriptures meant what I thought they meant. You do realize those are two different things, right? What the scriptures mean and what we sometimes think they mean? Yeah. You know what I mean, don't you? Because uh, you read the story with me. Doesn't it feel like the two women are hatching some kind of a plan to seduce Boaz? I mean, you've watched enough TV movies, TV and movies, right? Okay, this is two women trying to seduce Boaz. That's the way it feels. Take a bath, put on perfume, put on your sexiest dress. Wait a little while. Don't be too eager. Wait until it's really, really late and he's had a lot to eat and drink. Then when he's fallen asleep, just pull back the covers and do what he tells you to do. My dad would not have approved of this part of the story. (laughs) There's a lot going on here. and, And there are people in this story who are in the know and there are people who are in the dark. And Naomi and Boaz were native-born Israelites, and so all of these customary practices were like an unspoken language to them. They knew exactly what was going on, exactly what each of these these, uh, loaded gestures meant. But Ruth, remember, was from a foreign country. She looked different. She sounded different. She dressed different. She thought differently. She really was completely dependent upon other people at this point in the story, dependent upon Naomi for wise guidance, dependent upon Boaz for a certain merciful and loving and honorable and hopeful response. And in a day and age when the overwhelming majority of marriages involved women being bought and sold like livestock or real estate or slaves, and I don't mean kind of like livestock, real estate, or slaves, but exactly like livestock or real estate or slaves, in a day when that's what marriage really was, something strange was happening because under the advice of an older, wiser, godly woman. We find Ruth going and making a midnight proposal for marriage to Boaz. And imagine that I had to feel... Um, I, I, I don't think I have any idea how that would feel. I can't imagine the risk involved for her. I can't imagine the the backload of shame just waiting to overwhelm her if he said no. 
I can't imagine what a good person like her was thinking when her mother-in-law says, just go and get under the covers. Everything will work out. I don't have any idea how that made Ruth feel, but I'm guessing that this was not exactly comfort zone material for Ruth. But that's really what it amounted to. It was a midnight proposal for marriage based on a a, a handful of customs that were all dovetailing at this point in Ruth's life, with her having been a widow and her mother-in-law also having been a widow. And, And since that family had moved out of the country, their property that was their permanent family inheritance had been just kind of given to somebody else. And now they come rolling back into town and these two women have a farm and no way to make it turn into anything to eat or anything to sell. They're not much marriage material, secondhand. They're in a spot. And there's this midnight proposal that is the perfect solution to how do we turn the property into something we can live off of and How do we keep from being alone and vulnerable all the rest of our lives? A midnight proposal for marriage. Really wasn't an illicit seduction that was supposed to end up with Ruth and Boaz sexually exploiting one another for one night. It was the careful instruction of a wise old woman who understood the interplay of a handful of her people's customs. She knew that the end of harvest always, always, always featured a harvest party. She knew that at the end of the harvest party, everybody's feeling real good because they didn't have to harvest tomorrow and they had plenty to eat and to drink. She knew that the, the party always ended with the men sleeping in the field, positioning themselves around the great pile of grain so that they could guard it so that it wouldn't get stolen overnight. She also knew that it was very common for prostitutes at that time of year to make their way out to the field after dark when everybody was feeling kind of good and, you know, loosened up. She knew that in the most desperate of circumstances, a woman who otherwise wasn't going to get a marriage proposal could really put herself out there and ask a man to take her into his care, as symbolized by crawling under the hem of his blanket or his garment and lie at his feet. The customs were very peculiar. They were very particular. They they told the woman that it it had to take place at night, and it had to take place not just at night, but in the dark, and not just in the dark, but in secret, so that people wouldn't talk, and it would preserve her honor if the man refused. It carefully considered marriage law and inheritance law and family reputation, all very important things in an honor-based culture. It also considered both Ruth's personal needs and Boaz's personal needs. Man, don't you wish you had a savvy Naomi in your life? Someone whose wisdom you could count on to guide you through the toughest, most complex situations in your life with such broad vision and awareness of your personal needs. Everybody needs a Naomi in their life. Just so you know, that's one of the um, that's one of the intended graces of the church. The church is supposed to have young and old, and they're supposed to be together. It's so that the wisdom that is gained by all the scars and the tears doesn't have to be regenerated and relearned with every generation. We are grateful. We have Naomi's among us. I still consider myself young, so I'll speak to me and everybody else younger than me. 
take advantage. Don't be so arrogant as to assume that people who are older than you have forgotten what it's like. They've not forgotten what it's like. They've learned what it's like. And there's wisdom for you and me if we'll humble ourselves enough to ask and to listen. I spent a lot of time this week considering Naomi's advice to Ruth. And when you strip away all the cultural customary stuff that is so strange to you and I, even when we've read it a bunch of times, I think that really her advice boiled down to three things. The first one is this. When it comes to redemption, you have to really want it, not be sort of interested. Second, when it comes to a redeemer, you have to take a step in his direction. And third, when it comes to things working out, you're going to have to wait. You can see those three things in this story, can't you? When when you see the lengths to which Ruth would have to go to even get a chance at redemption, she had to be all in. She had to really, really want this or she would have backed out at any number of the awkward transitions throughout the whole process. And I'm here today to tell you that when it comes to you finding a redeemer, the redeemer God, you are not going to find him with half-hearted pursuit. You won't find him for the first time in your life by just kind of sort of being interested. And you're not going to stay connected with him by going at it half-heartedly. You're not going to move deeper into relationship with him by kind of sort of wanting it. Christianity is absolutely no good as a dabbler's religion. This is the worst religion in the world if you want to dabble with religion. Because this one will not work for you and will only make you more frustrated and miserable if you get partway in. Regardless of how much Ruth wanted it to work out, she was also going to have to take a first step, apparently. Boaz wasn't budging. Seemed to be waiting for something. And she had to ask him very directly to do for her what she wanted. Then Naomi's last word in the chapter amounts to this. And you're going to have to wait. The word was be patient. We don't like that word either. But essentially it was her saying, you're going to have to wait. I know you wanted him to say, Oh, of course, I'm in love with you, and, and, and you could fall into his arms right then, but you had to wait. And you wanted him to say, I promise I'm going to marry you. You didn't get anything like that. You had to wait. And he said, just go back home, and I'll see that somebody takes you in. She had to wait. If you've walked in a relationship with God for quite some time, doesn't that stuff kind of ring true in in your life about your relationship with him? If you don't know God well and are at this point in your life just beginning to check out God and church and religion and spirituality, you should be told these things that I'm telling you today. The Christian faith is not for dabblers. It's an all-in kind of faith that really does require wholehearted pursuit of relationship with God. He might let you in at the beginning half-heartedly, and then he's going to address the half-hearted stuff. He's going to go right for the dividing wall between your want-tos. You know what I'm talking about. You want to love God, but you also want to do life your own way. You want him to get involved and do big things in your life, but I kind of like the old stuff. 
You want to see some, some habits broken and some, some new things come and flourish in your life, but you don't want to give up the former things. God takes the first little nod, the first little look his direction, and he'll say, come to me, but we're going to address that dividing wall between your want-tos, and we're going we're to let you prioritize what you want most in life. Because understand this, you want a lot of things in life. We all do. Life isn't about what you want. It's about what you want most. And the thing that you want most, you will pursue. And if it is a relationship with the Redeemer God, he will say, let's go all the way. You have to really want it, not sort of want it. God God doesn't force us into faith. He doesn't force us into relationship. So if you've decided that you want these things to happen, then you're going to have to take a first step, his direction, by asking him to do exactly what you want him to do for you. None of this fatalistic, well, the will of God always comes to pass stuff, because we don't believe that. How many believe it is the will of God for human beings to sin? How many believe it was the will of God for people to be murdered? How many believe that it was the will of God for disease and pestilence to sweep across our world again and again? How many people think that the violence in our world today is God going, exactly what I wanted, perfect plan? Not us. So we can't come into this relationship with God with this fatalistic, well, the will of God always comes to pass, business. This just isn't true. And that's why we are to prevail upon God with our whole hearts, asking him for the things that make our hearts beat fast, for the deepest longings of the human soul. He respects human free will, so he responds to invitations, but he never crashes parties uninvited. And I want to be really honest with everybody about the timetable today as well. When it comes to the initial invitation for relationship, God always acts quickly. He always answers in the affirmatively. If you want to have a relationship with the God of this universe, you can begin that relationship today before you leave this place. But from that point forward in our lives, you must understand that relationship with God involves a fair amount of waiting. Hands of people who can testify to that, right? We want what we want. We want it now. God wants what is best. And he's intensely practical, which means that many good things have to wait. You realize it's just the reality of living in this world and in time. In order for you to have that job that you want, the person who has it now has to leave and before they leave, the person who has the job they want has to leave or get fired. Take some time. In order for you to have that house that you desire, someone has to move it, move, or somebody has to build it, and you will have to wait. In order for your relationship with a coworker to change, their heart and probably yours will have to change, and it takes some time. How many times have you had a change of heart in the first second that you realized that you needed one? How many times have you stood in the corner like this? I'll change when they do. I'm not making the first step. Aaron, quit pointing at me. (laughs) Someone was waiting for you to take the first step to waiting. 
When we invite God into our lives initially, he responds immediately. When we finally decide to quit trying to handle all of the various situations in our lives and begin to really desire for God to be involved, he waits for the invitation. And then he works with the people involved over time to bring about the maximum good. And to bring about the maximum good usually isn't accomplished with a quick fix. Take some time. See, God doesn't often use magic or the miraculous in our world. He does sometimes. It wows us. But God very clearly has a demonstrated preference for using relationships between human beings and love to bring about his will in this world. Because he's holy, he's constantly seeking the highest possible good. That's why when you and I place our orders, and let's face it, we approach an awful lot of our prayers like ordering at McDonald's. But it's because God is always pursuing the highest good that when we place those orders, we don't always get exactly what we asked for. When we ask for the highest good, our desires mesh perfectly with God's, and he and we together then collaborate over time to bring that about. But whenever our desires are tainted by selfishness that prefers self over others, well, you can count on God to forget that part of the order or to replace it with something else, or leave it out altogether. Why? Because God's all in on this relationship with us, and he's all in on being holy, and he's all in on being good. Sometimes he says, I'd rather not move as long as you're just pursuing what's kind of good. Let's wait. If you've never yet invited God into relationship with you, I've said it a couple of times, you can do that today. Just be really honest about it. Confess to him who you really are, what you really like, what you really are hoping to see from your life, and own up to the fact that until now, you've kind of held God at arm's length because you've wanted to do life on your own terms. He knows it anyway. Just get see-through with him. In real humility, just drop the act of independence. We never believed it of you anyway. Admit that you want him. Admit that you need him. And he'll say yes. And remember, the first yes is always a running yes when he comes at full speed your direction. Why? Because he's all in on relationship with us. And he's all in on love. If you already know him, consider this question. What situation in your life today needs redemption? Remember what a redeemer is? It's a person who has the horsepower, the resources, and the compassion to get involved in your life's biggest problem. If a situation in your life needs redemption, it needs a redeemer, and God is the one who does that. You can take your request directly to God. But in light of what we've read in today's passage, I would recommend to you that you do something else first. Tell your situation to someone whose spiritual maturity you trust. And ask them how you should pray about it. Tell your problem, your situation, to someone whose spiritual maturity you trust and ask them if they will point out any selfishness that they observe in your requests. Ask them how they would pray 
about your situation if they were in your shoes. And then with a teachable spirit, take that advised request to God. Again, truth in advertising here, you'll probably have to wait for him to answer. But you can be assured that when he does, God will have put his very best effort and called some of his very best people into action to bring about the highest possible good for you and the people around you. And from time to time, when you don't know what he's doing, he's involving you in the answer to somebody else's prayer because you hold the keys to the goodness in somebody else's life. Your selflessness, your surrender puts you in, as a tool in the hands of God to be used to bring about the ultimate goodness for somebody else. You see, life isn't always all about you or me. Why did I have to go through X? Don't know. But I know if you go through it with God, he's either using it to bring about some amazing good for you or for someone else, the best good. And I know it'd be much better if what I said was, Let's pray about all the things you want right now. That just wouldn't fit with this sermon. Because I think I read the scriptures right this week. And they said most of the time, there's some waiting to do. So how about instead of running to God with all our problems today, how about instead of running to him with the spiritual version of our Christmas list, how about instead we ask him to make us teachable, and to open our eyes to the Naomi's around us so that we can start that conversation with them that might then instruct us how to act and how to pray, how to get involved with God's pursuit of the very best good. Stand with me if you would. Maybe first, God, we will ask today, what needs to change in our hearts before you can begin to really bring about the highest good? We'll drop our guard. We won't defend ourselves or, or make justifications. We'll just listen for your voice. Is there something in my heart that needs to change today? That's the teachability question, Lord. It starts with us asking you to teach us. But maybe there's a, maybe there's a, a step of further humility that we need to take in asking you to make us uh, the kind of people who can receive correction, guidance, wisdom from others. Lord, would you make 
our hearts that kind of teachable today? Mine? Lord, forgive me for the times that in my arrogance I have pushed ahead because I had it figured out. And thank you for using the lumps that come from that to teach me. But this time, Lord, instead of running ahead, I ask that you would provide for each of us a Naomi, a wise older Christian. If they're wise, it's probably because they've suffered a fair amount. If they've suffered a fair amount and are still Christian, it's probably because they have great faith. I need men and women like that in my life, and I ask for them today. Lord, my brothers and sisters, friends, gathered around me here today, some of them have very pressing needs in their lives, and and what they want to do is is run ahead to the asking and and one more time say, do this and this. God, you've got to come through. You've got to address it. What I ask for them is that you'd give them patience Today, the patience that comes from faith, from from believing that you're really good and you really are going to work toward the highest good for them and teach their spirits this morning to make a greater ask. Ask for patience and for a Naomi and for a teachable heart. We lift our own prayers of this kind to you now. Lord, hear our prayers. Now, Lord, I ask for the kind of peripheral vision from here going forward that will help each of us to receive the answer to that prayer that we just prayed. Because you usually don't announce these uh, people of great wisdom with sirens and lights, some great entourage. Usually, we, we can just hear these whispers and these hints from your Holy Spirit. Look this way. See him, see her. Quiet down and listen. Lord, give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to us through our wiser elders. And then, Lord, since you know what's best, not just what's good, Would you bring about the best for my brothers and sisters here today? You're going to have to hold their hands. You're going to have to to bear their burdens. You're going to have to strengthen their weak knees that buckle after months and years of bearing the same burdens. You're going to have to step up all along the way before you provide the big answer, God. But you've, you've made it clear in Scripture that you want to do that. So I invite you to come. Redeemer, come. Hear the cries of your people. Help us to to come your direction, Lord, that first step with a whole heart. And the next step with a whole heart. I ask these things in your holy name. Amen.